Welcome to the Tactics Meeting Podcast. This is episode 50, Data Management with Portage-Based Solutions, recorded August 29th, 2022. I'm Dan Smiley, and I'll be your host as we talk to subject matter experts about response tactics and technology. Well, it's time for the Tactics Meeting, and I am really excited to have John Newhoff and Kate Waldhauser from Portage Bay Solutions, people I've worked with doing custom software design to solve incident command system problems since, what is it, John, since 2012, maybe? You have a better memory than I do. Um, 10 years, it seems like a little longer than that, but uh, I'd have to go back and look at my email history. Okay, well, we'll start with you, John. Uh, you know, I, I was trying to develop a software application, kind of an initial response application uh, back in the day and reached out to, to you and you'd never heard of, of ICS. Tell us a little bit about Portage Bay and, and what you guys do and how, what you thought of your introduction to the incident command system. Oh, well, Portage Bay is a custom software development firm. Uh, we've been in business since uh, the early 1990s. Um, and we do uh, custom projects for a wide range of clients. Um, we started out working in ICS a little bit with, with you at, when you were at NJ Resources. And we're still doing some work for NJ Resources on their, uh, on their evaluation tools they use during, during exercises. Some of our other big clients are uh, MD Squared International, a, a primary medical care provider. Uh, we do a little bit of work for some uh, larger organizations, the University of Washington. A lot of our clients are small companies um, that uh, wouldn't have a wouldn't have a real big name recognition worldwide. Um, we did actually do a tiny bit of work in ICS, not exactly ICS. Um, I don't know if we ever talked about it, but I, I did some work for a Seattle King County disaster team that came um, one of the early national disaster medical system uh, providers. Um, but uh, that was a long time ago. That was 30 years ago. <laughs> um, but uh, I really enjoyed working in and learning about uh, the ICS system as I've worked with different companies we work with now. Um, I think the for me, the the really interesting part about it is the is how applicable it is to areas outside uh, disaster management. I, I think some of the simple concepts in ICS make a lot of sense in just everyday business management. I, I know I think about the need to have um, a direct tie-in of responsibility between a task and the person who's supposed to complete it. All right, my phone's uh, even. Um, you know, the, the, the need to have clear lines of responsibility and be able to hold somebody accountable for work that needs to be done if it doesn't get done properly and um, and, and being able to track that. Uh, those kinds of simple things that, that ICS makes very defined, uh, I, th I think has a lot of applicability to everyday life, everyday work. Kate, you were really the primary developer that I actually worked with. I mean, John is the owner of the company and did some of the early work, but you're the one who has done all the heavy lifting and still continues to do the heavy, the heavy lifting. I, 
I, I remember when I asked you when we were writing Respond to give me full access to the file, and you're like, yeah, that's never going to happen. And <laughs> uh, so what, what was your experience like jumping into the incident command world and trying to develop these these tools to automate and simplify the process? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I have been working in custom development for a long time. I, I'm a self-taught developer and I think that helps, you know, I think about that as my background and it's really what that, what that means to me is that I like learning new things. I'm willing to throw myself in and, and say, okay, how does this work? And what is all this about? And I, and I feel like that's one of the great things about working in custom development is that I get to learn other people's businesses. You know, I'm not, I'm not an expert in ICS. I'm, I come in as like, I don't know anything. And, but I have the tools to design the technology and the, and the application. And, uh, I feel like it's been a really, uh, interesting and, um, important industry to be a part of. And it, it works well with my mind because yeah, like John, I'm very data and organizational focused. So, so getting my, you know, getting my mind around ICS and okay, here's this group of people and they have the need to communicate in an efficient and timely manner. It's like, okay, so I can, I can start to see the tools that are necessary for that, but I still feel like there's so much to learn and, um, and also it's, it's probably going to keep changing, you know, so there's, there's, this thing to kind of always keep up with, which again is the same in technology. There's always new technology coming out and we have to stay up to date with that. So I see some similarities, but it's been, uh, I've enjoyed getting to learn more about this industry and, and getting more of a grasp on it a lot. You know, I was working with the uh, Gallagher Marine Systems and when these spill management team rules for California and Washington came online, it became clear that we needed a more uh, a detailed process for managing our spill management team members, keeping track of their training, keeping track of their experience. And so I wrote a, a custom application um, f for them. And, you know, in my work with you, Kate, um, I have what I kind of call the 80-20 rule. It's I get 80% of the way there, and then I, I send up a flare. Kate! help me i messed it up and you come in and you and you fix it and one of the things that we really wanted to do in this application is have a map that would show where all of the different members of the spill management team were located worldwide and so i came to you for that how did you implement that mapping feature into the application so yeah, I, I think uh, I just touching on, yeah, the relationship between what you're known as a citizen developer and the professional developer has worked so well, you know, because yeah, we can speak the same language and and you come with me with, okay, I've built this, but now we need to do this. And it's it's been really cool to work together in that way. Um, I, yeah, so we, you, the set of requirements were to, um, yeah, be able to visualize and see all these uh, different personnel on a map. And of course, Google Maps has an API and it makes perfect sense to use the Google Maps API. Don't try to build a map from scratch because we already have all these wonderful 
beautiful tools out there that in the platform we develop in, which is a low code platform, we can develop really quickly and connect to any API out there. So we developed a interface that had a Google map and it had pins where all the different um, people were and it, and it basically just used their zip code. So every time you entered a personnel a person put in their zip code, it would run some code that would geolocate. So it just gave us the latitude and longitude of that location and then we could pin it on a map. So really this could be reused for any type of database. It doesn't have to be people, anything that's, that um, you want to map, we could integrate pretty easily. So what does API stand for? For those of, who are out there who have no earthly clue what we're talking about for software, what is an API? I love these test questions. <laughs> Application programming interface. And, um, that is, I don't know exactly where that terminology came from, but it's it's just the the has been around for. Oh gosh, now it's like it feels like a test. <laughs> I don't know exactly how long, but it's the common way I would say in the tech universe about how we how we speak to other applications. So. Um, I guess it's also known as the programmable web. You know, that's the term that's been around. I guess since like 2000, early 2000s, people started talking about this because there was, it's like you don't want to reinvent the wheel when, when somebody has this database or a solution out there like Google or MailChimp or QuickBooks that does its job perfectly well, you don't want to go rebuild something. And so to be able to pull and extract data um, and communicate in a way that that you know, you know, it's, it's a set of guidelines as well as you know exactly how to pull and push the data from from those other systems. I think that's a great uh, explanation. Basically, this software, uh, like Google Maps, provides a key, a route in to say, "Hey, use our map in your application, and you feed us the data and." and we'll do some magic with it and display it the way you need to display it, which is, is super mm -hmm. cool. But not just like maps. In my application for the Washington State Maritime Cooperative, I have what I call the Wismet Cloud, which is really a 201 or initial response development tool to allow collaborative production of that incident briefing package. I wanted to be able to do text messaging within the application. I wanted to be able to activate my spill management team and then have them be able to correspond and have a record of those messages that weren't out in the regular text messaging world. And I got an account with Twilio and I managed to code up so that it would go one way. I could send a text message out to the team and they would receive it. And I could include in that message like a meeting link for Teams or Zoom and bring them in, but they couldn't reply. And once again, I sent up a flare. Kate, help me. What was that process like? Yeah, so that one, you know, being able to send and receive SMS messages is something we've actually done for a number of clients. So it's a process we're very familiar with because it's such a valuable tool, right? You want to be able to, to use your solution to send messages and then to receive them and have a whole history and a whole logging history of it. Um, so we use another tool in our in our toolbox, which allows for real time, um, basically 
receiving of these API calls. So that's, again, we're using an API to connect to Twilio and, um, and it, 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 it all happens in real time. So as soon as somebody's on their phone, sends in the message, this, this tool receives the message and then pushes it into the database. And then um, from there, you know, yeah, I mean, there's there's so many number of ways to to make it to make it work and accessible, but just having the data there with the alert. So so it's it's syncing up your information between your phone and everybody's phone that's sending messages, and the, and then having it all logged in a centralized database. And really, I mean, how long did it? I, I wish I could give a number of how long it took us to integrate that, but it, I think it happened pretty quickly. We you know we had it. Um, that's the benefit of working in a low-code platform is I think it was 10, 10 or 15 hours possibly, and we had that that working yeah, we had, solution. Yeah, we had a little glitches along the way. We ended up having to do a yeah. thing where we ended up getting a couple of additional phone numbers in the Twilio account so that we could oh, yeah. so that we could assign a specific phone number to a specific incident. And you wrote some really cool code that allowed us to rotate through those phone numbers just, you know, under the assumption that probably no more than two events would ever actually be active at one time. So we, we deactivate an event that frees up the phone number. And so then when we initiate a new response event, one of the phone numbers that is free gets assigned to that event and everything then happens within that number. I thought that was a really elegant solution to a problem that I didn't even foresee. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because that is necessary if you have all, if you have multiple responses at the same time or multiple incidents and then um, everybody's responding to one phone number, you have no way to differentiate the messages of, well, what is this in regards to, you know, unless somebody types in a certain code or yeah, or we used the phone number trick there so that different phone numbers link to different incidents. You know, I've worked with a number of companies who use these, I can't remember the name of all of them, but they use these applications for making emergency notifications within their team. And they're really expensive. I mean, like, $30,000 a year kind of expensive. And we basically built that uh, that work stream, that solution right into our custom app for about 10 or 15 hours of development time. And really what is about $10 a month in Twilio fees for these phone numbers, really cool. It's really quite amazing. It, it always surprises me how much these large companies are able to charge for these solutions that are really pretty simple, um, but no one knows how to do it themselves. And so they just figure, oh, well, 30 grand a year, that's what it costs to do this. Not true. It's just what they charge to do it. One of the problems that we have that people ha still haven't really solved um, or ignore in emergency response is that there's not always going to be an internet available to you wherever you happen to be. And one of the key issues that we discussed in the early stages was offline syncing. Hey, I'm leaving the command post where I have access to the response application where I can get my tasking and, and whatnot. And then I go out on a boat, I go out on the 
helicopter, I'm doing some field observations, I'm collecting data, I have no internet connection, and then I get back into internet range and I want to be able to sync this information uh, back up or I want to be able to run uh, locally. Uh, John, can you talk a little bit about the importance of offline syncing and what the process is for implementing that kind of tool into response applications? Sure. Um, data, synchron data synchronization is certainly one of the more complex data management uh, requirements that we end up with on any projects we work on. We do um, offline synchronization for a number of clients uh, where we have a, an app on the phone uh, and a server-based tool uh, back at the office. And without going into the details, it is, um, it is surprisingly difficult to get a, an offline synchronization system to work really well, especially if the, the synchronization needs are bi-directional, where somebody's entering data back in the server somebody else is entering data out in the field. Somehow you have to get those all merged into the same system without overwriting data from one or the other. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty complicated um, requirement. Uh, one of the things we like to try to do is eliminate that need for bi-directionality. Um, and in a situation where someone's gathering data out in the field, we can sometimes do that by allowing them to put data into the phone, send it back to the server, but not have it have to have it go both ways and uh, allow for uh, modification in both locations. That can simplify the, the process a good deal. Um, the 213 app we've been working on um, will, right now it's a web, web tool. Um, you do need a, a server connection to use it, but we'll probably be making it um, a bi-directional sync uh, product for this very reason, so that someone can be out on a drill or out on an actual incident and complete a, a resource request in it without having to have that internet connection and then upload it when when they're back online at a later time. I think that that having having been on a number of exercises myself, even just in a hotel room, and in fact, even at Clean Pacific recently, the internet um, that the hotel provided uh, was really slow. And if you're relying on a on a uh, connected app, a web app, in that environment, it can be pretty frustrating for the users. So having something that's offline, really responsive, that you then upload the data later, I think is a really good model. Yeah, so during this pandemic, we moved to online command posts. I've done probably a dozen worst case drills and the 213RR resource request was a challenge. How do we do? resource requests when we can't use the, uh, dare I say, old-fashioned paper process to route these requests. And one of the things that we did that was very successful, and shout out to Matthew Collada at Transmontane who uh, really coded up the first Excel workbook that did this uh, pretty effectively. Uh, to allow us within Microsoft Teams to do this process, but there were some there were some problems with that as well. And so we talked about this uh, issue, this need to have another way 
to do these resource requests to to be able to have uh, uh, permissions for who can uh, request, who can authorize, who can approve, who can view certain parts of the data. Because some of this financial information that ends up going in can can be confidential or or propriety proprietary. And you guys took on a challenge for Clean Pacific to try to put this together um, primarily as a demonstration, but I think it's come out to be a really great tool. I'm intending to use it at two different drills that are coming up here, one in October and one in, in November. Kate, you're the coder. It was, it was your baby. <laughs> I love the interface. What, what was putting together that application like? Uh, it was really fun. I think it was, it's, um, it's always um, an interesting challenge to take, yeah, an Excel spreadsheet and convert it into an application. Uh, so we, I originally designed, started designing it for, you know, web-based, um, a web-based interface, but that could also be used on a tablet, and then we and then we built a, a version for iOS, so an, an app, and that is the the currently there's the free version, and that's the the iOS app version. But I really took a lot of care in the um, in the UI and the user experience when I developed it. So I wanted to make it. I wanted to meet these certain design principles about learnability. So that means, you know, it should be easy for anybody to pick up and learn. It should be obvious. You don't need a user's manual. You can pick it up. You can use it. Um, it should be efficient. You know, you can do what you want to do really quickly. So there's this really obvious green new resource button. You know, that's the very obvious thing to be able to do. Um, it should be, it should meet the, the quality of memorability, right? So if you're only going to, pick it up and use it for a little while. And then, and then you're maybe a year later, you pick it up again, you should be able to easily remember how to use it. So I, I was really designing it with these principles in mind. Again, errors, you know, I want the errors to be obvious and tell you exactly what's going on. So, you know, if you're filling out a resource request and you um, don't complete all of the required fields, it's going to pop up and say, hey, you didn't do this. You need to do this before you can continue. So it's it's really essentially guiding somebody through the process of completing a resource request without letting them make any mistakes. Um, but but, you know, it still has some flexibility in it, but it's it's really a guide. And um, and there was a lot of care taken into the user experience so that it uh, it could make it um a pleasure to use for people because I think that's the thing is we want to develop products that that can be um, long term that can withstand the test of time and to do that like it has to create a certain level of user user satisfaction so you should get in there and feel like oh this was really efficient and then you have all your resource requests logged in one place you have the finance team the logistics team everybody is able to approve the correct resources that are assigned to them. You can print reports and then you have a database of all, you know, you can sort all the resource requests that were made. Um, you have a whole history. And then for the next incident or drill, you can do it all over again. So, so that was my design process with it. 
I love the dashboards too. So if I'm the resource unit leader, I can see all the things that are waiting for me to review and approve. If I'm the logistics section chief, I get my own view. If I'm the finance section chief, I get my own view. You know, the, the, we can assign many requesters uh, so that people have access. You can make a request from the field, which is, is, is great. And one of the design principles that, you know, John, you've talked about uh, forever is the need to be simple, right? The need to be simple. Um, and that has been a, uh, made this a, a, a pleasure. What are your thoughts on simplicity? I think um, one of the things about the 213 app that I quite like is the, is the way it doesn't it doesn't uh, require the user to use the app for everything. Um, it, it leverages technology they're already familiar with. So the, the notifications we're sending out are simply email notifications. Um, so they they get the notification in the tool that they're most frequently using already, probably. So they if they have something that they need to approve, they get an email in their inbox in a place that they're already monitoring regularly. And then they know that they can go and, and make that change in the in the 213 app to, to make the approval or not. So I think um, that's a good example of integrating with external tools. Um, uh, in effect, that's an API integration. Um, and we're, we're leveraging tools that they're already familiar with there. Um, I think that really improves, uh, improves ease of use. Um, I think, as we were talking about a tiny bit before um, we started the podcast, I think in, in an environment, and we run into this occasionally with um, other projects as well, anytime we have a process that's only used infrequently, um, it's a red flag to us that, that process has to be has to be really simple um, and, and memorable, as Kate mentioned. Um, that happens outside ICS as well, um, processes where a client only has to do um, maybe it's a year-end closing process or a, or a report they only run once a year. Um, when, when we have users that only perform a task once a year, like somebody participating in a, in a drill, um, it, it, it's a real challenge for that person to remember what they need to do and exactly how to do it. And so the application really needs to walk them through it and be as simple as possible in order for them to be effective at it. I think that's something we've learned um, on some of the other ICS apps we've worked on with you in the past. If it's too complicated, people prefer to revert to paper. Yeah, they do that quickly. We see that in all kinds of things, like in you know situation maps, and and you know the the minute people can't get the information that they need or are used to, they go to whatever is most comfortable. They go to Excel. They go to Google Earth. They go to wherever it is that they go, and then all of a sudden. It's no longer unified. We're, we're, we've, we've branched our data. John, I run these apps for the most part using Amazon Web Services uh, uh, virtual servers. They're super reliable. They're sitting right on the backbone of the Internet. They're really fast. But in the event of an incident like Hurricane Katrina, uh, Sandy, God forbid, the Cascadia earthquake here in in Washington, even the most reliable internet like Amazon Web Services is gonna go offline. What is my ability to run these kinds of customs app 
apps locally within the command post? It really depends on on what the requirements were for the software developer that wrote them. You know, what what are the design constraints that that were provided to the developer? Um, a lot of these apps, um, a lot of modern software as a service apps, um, do require internet access. They don't function at all if you're not if you're not online. Um, and Amazon service Amazon Web Services is great. We use them all the time. Um, and in in the event of a uh, a Cascadia um, subduction zone earthquake. Um, odds are Amazon might not even be affected. Their data center up in the Dallas, Oregon might not be affected, but everybody's ability to connect to it would be affected significantly. Um, so I think in, in the command center, if the app isn't designed to work locally and independently, um, it isn't going to. And uh, yeah, I think that's the kind of the the problem with drills versus um, actual incidents. Um, in, the, in the drills, requiring a connected app works great. Sometimes, sometimes the hotel internet is not very good. Um, but yeah, during the actual incident, when the when the existence of a valid interconnect, internet connection is is questionable, um, you really have to have an an app that will function offline and sync the data up later. Um, that has a side advantage that um, a disconnected app is much easier to create a very performant, very quickly performing application. And the internet, when it's slow, is a pain to work with. Whereas a disconnected app works very quickly on your phone or your pad device. And then the data can be synced up later. So it's really something that has to be a design constraint at the beginning of the process of writing it, that that app needs to work offline. Yeah, one of the things that we had talked about, I don't think we ever actually implemented it, but it was the idea of doing uh, failover redundancy. And I know that one of the low code uh, solutions that you guys work in is able to uh, sync the primary server to a backup server. One of the things I thought about doing is having a local server, you know, in the, in my call center, that is always syncing up with the Amazon Web Services server. And if I lost connection, it would just fail over. Can you speak a little bit about that capability? For that kind of a, a redundancy situation, what's required is a, is a de definition of what you mean by failover and, and how much downtime can be tolerated. Um, and, then, and then you get into a simple dollars and cents equation the, the shorter the period of the shorter the interval of downtime that you can tolerate, the, the more expensive it, it gets. So if a lot of times for a lot of our projects, if we tell a client, look, the maximum amount of downtime that you're going to experience is uh, 45 minutes, then they're perfectly happy with that. And they don't want to spend more money to reduce that 45 minute downtime. If a client comes to us and says, look, we, we want zero downtime in the event of a in the event of an earthquake, we want to be able to access access the solution in real time one minute after the earthquake occurs. Um, then that gets to be quite expensive. Then, then we are looking at a at a redundant server in a separate data center, uh, a um, a load load balancing a load balancing router that routes the incoming 
uh, database connections to whichever server is online and a, uh, a, a technology in place that keeps the data in, you know, on the two servers in sync. So processes running on the servers that are syncing the data back and forth between them in real time. And that all, all those things put together, you know, that your obviously your infrastructure costs double um, the software you need to have in place to manage that that uh, server replication uh, is is not uh, not consequentially expensive. Um, so it gets expensive to have a truly redundant server that's ready in real time. Um, but Amazon Web Services and and other server virtualization technologies make it pretty easy to have a standby server that you can spin up on a moment's notice um, and start using. That's that's a little bit more typical for what we do with our clients. Um, if they have a high availability need, we'll keep an Amazon Web Services uh, server um, on cold standby, say uh, in the McLean, Virginia data center. And if there's if uh, if there's an earthquake and Amazon's uh, Oregon data center goes offline, um, we can spin up that cold standby server in certainly less than an hour, often less than 45 minutes, um, and have the application running again uh, in near real time. What about so the data that was on the original server? Do it, if it's in cold standby, it's not synced, right? So how do I how do I update yeah. the data? So one of the one of the great things about Amazon Web Services um, is their uh, their different services are 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 um, separate. So their their Elastic Block Storage service is separate from their EC2 server virtualization uh, technology. So if we have two um, virtual servers, one in McLean, Virginia, and one in Portland, Oregon, um, one of them hot, so the one in Portland is um, running, the one in McLean is on standby, They're, they can both access Amazon's storage services, the, the Elastic Block Storage Service. So when the server in Portland goes offline, that, that volume that we all think of as the D volume, the data volume, we just log into Amazon Web Services and reattach it, detach it from the, the Portland server and reattach it to the McLean, Virginia server. And the data is accurate as of whenever the Portland server went offline um, because we're, we're really re we're reattaching the same volume, the same virtual storage volume that was attached on the, on the uh, Portland server, we're reattaching to the McLean server and um, the data is in is available in in whatever state it was when the Portland server went offline. So I can so think of not... it as unplugging my external hard drive from one computer and plugging it into another yeah. computer. That's a little bit simpler uh, than I described. All right, but I can think of it that way. <laughs> yeah, it's not truly it's not uh, it's not a hot redundant server because we can't we can't log into the new server two seconds after the Portland server went offline, somebody does have to do something to get the McLean server up and running. Um, but from a from an ongoing cost standpoint, it's, it's a lot lower cost to maintain that, that probably not, cold standby is probably not the right word, warm standby would probably be a slightly better term. Like if Cascadia happened, you're here in Washington state, John, you might not be able to do it, but Kate's in Austin, Texas, she's likely able to 
be able to spin that up. And you have other people all over the country, right? How many employees are you up to now? Oh, there's 10 of us now. We're um, actually, we started out as a Seattle company. I, I, I often think it's funny to tell people we're more of a Texas company now because uh, in addition to Kate, I have two other uh, employees in Texas. And then we also have people in uh, Nebraska, Florida, California, and then uh, there's uh, two of us here in Seattle. We are kind of all over the place these days. Well, that's the way that's the way businesses work. That's, that's yeah, why I'm able to do my like, podcast is because it doesn't matter where you are anymore. Mm -hmm. yeah, I like I like to say we were virtual before virtual became popular. There you go. I like that. What, true. A, what a good catchphrase. Um, if somebody wanted to use the 213RR app in an ex, ex, uh, exercise or an event, Kate, how would they go about? Is it is it uh, is it ready to is it ready to rock? I know we have a demo version in the App Store, which I downloaded to my phone and play and used. It was really cool for those who are interested. It's called Easy Two Thirteen. So E A S Y, the word Easy Two Thirteen. You can get it in the App Store. Um, but what if I wanted to run it uh, so that it was multi-user in an, in an event? How do I go about doing that? Well, the first step would be to to, to contact us. Um, you know, we'd we'd have to to meet and talk a little bit about their how they want to use it. Um, what you know, there's some licensing involved, of course, and um, so we'd want to know what the requirements were if it needed to be offline or web based or what exactly they're they would be looking for, and uh, and they can contact us and have a call and um and then it, but really it's pretty close to being set up you know we're doing yeah a little bit more beta testing at this point but uh it's pretty close to being ready to go yeah i'm excited like i said i'm going to use it i'm going to use it for a drill in october and i'm going to use it for a different drill in november and my my client in october is actually super excited about it he went out looking for a developer to develop this application. It was super expensive. He couldn't find it. That was one of the inspirations I had when I talked to you guys about this 213RR app. So the, the cost of, of a custom app is certainly something that we were thinking about um, with doing the 213 app and showing it at Clean Pacific was to showcase, um, you know, the, the simplest, the relative simplicity and low cost um, that you can do an app like 213 with. Um, you know, we developed it in probably 40 hours or less, which for a custom app uh, is is pretty impressive, I think. Well, Kate, John, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the uh, on the podcast. I'm looking forward to using the 213RR app coming up here in October. Hopefully, uh, one or the other of you will be able to attend that drill. I'll talk to you about that later. Oh, yeah, surprise. I was hoping you could come. And... Uh, talk about the rest later that's great thanks so much for having us on dan well i hope you enjoyed my conversation with kate and john at portage based solutions really great folks to work on custom applications i've done a ton of work with them in the past and i'm look, looking forward to doing work with them in the future if you enjoyed the show do us a favor and share it with a friend or a colleague so that we can get the information out to as many people as possible. 
If you would like to be a guest on the show, you can email me at podcast at tacticsmeeting.online. If you want help with custom software or drill design, you're thinking about a virtual exercise and you want some help, you can give me a call. My phone number is 206-495-3805. Let's get back to work.